went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying God, praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, if you're like me, when you hear those words from the scripture, you feel a little bit nostalgic, at least I do. I picture my family sitting around a Christmas tree or sitting around a dinner table and my mom opens up a tattered Bible and we read the Christmas story together. We do it every year. My dad can't get through it without crying. Most of the time, I can't either. I just feel really nostalgic. And for some of you, you hear those words and you feel Christmassy. I don't know any other word to describe that feeling other than Christmassy. You know, it's that snow on the rooftops, cheeks are like roses, dimples how merry. You know what I'm talking about. It's that Christmassy feeling. And for some of you, you listen to those words and you, and you feel even maybe disconnected. You're like, you know, th- that happened a long time ago and, and, and it was far away. It, it, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily false or mythological. It just, it's just separated from me. It's irrelevant. It doesn't feel like it, 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 you know, it doesn't feel like it connects with me today. So it, just in a moment of honesty, how many of you would say when I read those words, you got one of those three feelings, the Christmassy feeling? The nostalgic feeling or the disconnected long, long time ago, far away type of feeling. On three, any one of those three feelings, on three, raise your hand, one, two, three. Good, good, perfect. I want to ruin that for you today is what I want to do. I want to ruin that Christmassy feeling. I want to ruin that nostalgia that you feel because, uh, because that's really not what's in the text. So, so let's just set a little bit of context here, and, and we're going to have to do this in the form of a history lesson. I know that some of you came to church this morning like, oh, great, history, perfect. But, but, but it helps us understand what's actually happening in Luke 2, 1 through 20. 
Picture ancient Rome about 80 years before Jesus came along. A guy named Julius Caesar was in power. Julius Caesar started claiming that he was divine, that he was God incarnate. And you could imagine that this kind of ticked off the people in the Roman Republic because they had set up a, a diversified power structure. It was the very first republic. And so when he started claiming he was God incarnate and he was the ruler of the modern world, they went, eh, that doesn't seem all that great to us. We're going to kill you. So you've heard of Brutus and Cassius that actually killed Julius Caesar, assassinated him in, uh, let's see, March 15th, Ides of March, right? Ides of March, March 15th, 44 BC. Well, Caesar's grandnephew, Julius Caesar's grandnephew, is a guy named Gaius Octavius. He was away at military school when this happened. And he heard that his great uncle, Julius Caesar, had been assassinated. So he thought, maybe he's left me something in his will. I'm going to go back to Rome. And his military uh, advisors and his, his schoolmates, actually, as well, said, this is a really bad idea. Your great uncle just got killed, like, in Rome. Don't go back to Rome. And he said, well, I got to find out what's in the will. So I'm going back. So there he goes. He goes back and he finds out that his great uncle, Julius Caesar, has given him two-thirds of the Roman Empire in his will and adopted him as his own son because Julius Caesar didn't have any kids. So Gaius Octavius has now been given two-thirds of the Roman Empire. Now, this doesn't make any difference for him because Brutus and Cassius has ju have just killed his great uncle Julius Caesar. So power doesn't mean anything, money doesn't mean anything if somebody's about to take it from you by force, which is the likelihood Brutus and Cassius were about to take it back and give it back to the Republic. Julius Caesar thought, no, this whole emperor thing sounds pretty good, so I'm going to try to fight back against these guys and keep what I feel is rightfully mine. So he formed an alliance like they do on Survivor. You know, they form an alliance, and he, he grabbed a guy named Marcus Lepidus and a guy named Mark Antony, and he said, hey, look, let's form the second Roman triumvirate, and let's fight back against Brutus and Cassius. And they said, okay, that sounds great. So Lepidus gave his troops to Mark Antony and to Gaius Octavius. And he said, I'm going to entrust you with all these troops, all these soldiers that I have. You guys go defeat Brutus and Cassius. And they did. They did defeat Brutus and Cassius at Philippi. You may have heard of that city if you've been around church for a little while. They defeated them at, at Philippi in, 43 B, or in 42 BC. Mark Anthony and Gaius Octavius did just that. But you know how boys can be. Uh, if there's an emperorship available... Three of them sharing it? I don't think so. So Mark Anthony and Gaius Octavius thought, well, we got to get rid of this Lepidus guy. So they exiled him and they kicked him out. And he didn't have any troops to fight back because he had just given over all his troops to Gaius Octavius and to Mark Anthony. This is the kind of stuff I think is funny in history. This isn't in my notes, but I just think this is funny. They gave him like a very insignificant role in the Roman Senate after they exiled him. So they would only allow him Lepidus. They would only allow him to come back and vote. That's it. And it was a totally insignificant vote. And just to belittle him, the Roman emperor always made him vote last. I think that's really funny. I think that's the kind of, like the kind of stuff I read and I'm like, I like that guy, but that's, that's, that's before Christ. And then Jesus came and he changed me. Okay. So what you've got left now 
is Gaius Octavius and Mark Anthony, and they've got all the troops in the Roman Empire. And Gaius Octavius thought, you know what? I'd kind of like to be sole ruler of Rome. And so he defeated Mark Anthony at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. Mark Anthony subsequently took his own life. And in 27 BC, the grandnephew of Julius Caesar took the title Caesar Augustus. And he says, I've, I've descended from God incarnate, Julius Caesar. I am the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Republic was essentially erased in 27 BC. Now, one of those territories that Julius Caesar had taken over, uh, uh, Caesar Augustus' great uncle, when he was kind of marching across the modern or the, the Roman world at the time, was a little insignificant country that nobody really had heard of before called Israel. And it became part of the Roman Empire. So, Caesar Augustus takes power in 27 BC and, you know, about 25, 27-ish years into his reign, he thought, you know what? I don't know if I'm getting all the tax dollars that are rightfully mine. I've got to determine whether or not I have all of the money that is rightfully mine. And the only way to determine if you're getting all the tax dollars that are rightfully yours is to count the people that are under your thumb. Am I right? That's where our story begins. Caesar Augustus, who thinks he's God incarnate, the sole ruler of the Roman Empire, issues a decree that a census should be taken. And I'm going to read those first four verses again now that we have a context. But as I read them again, I want you to listen for something. Listen to the detail here. Listen to the detail that Luke gives us in these first four verses. They go like this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. He wanted to take a census. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. What does Luke want us to see with all of this detail that he includes? Because he names emperors and governors. He names cities. He names the names of the couple, Joseph and Mary. He gives us even details of how Mary wrapped her child uh, up and, and where she placed him. He gives, us, he gives us very, very specific details as to the, the the context and what's going on when Jesus was born. What does he want us to know? And, and here's bottom line truth number one today. We've got a couple. Bottom line truth number one. God entered into our world at a real moment in human history in the form of a real baby named Jesus. We can get lost sometimes in the Christmas season and, and we forget 
that Joseph and Mary were real people and Jesus was a real baby. There was a real emperor in power named Augustus, a real governor in Syria. His name was Quirinius. A real census was taken. Joseph and Mary journeyed to a real town called Bethlehem. And while they were there, a real baby was born. Side note, I've got a four-month-old. I know how real babies can get. He had real parents, Jesus did, and they were really afraid. He was born into a real time and place with friends and emotions and challenges and joys. God really became flesh 2,000 years ago. Jesus was the real deal. And to be honest with you, I just want to be straight that I think this is one of our biggest challenges at Christmas time. Yikes, I almost dropped my Bible. Especially for guys like me, because I love Christmas. Like, I love Christmas so much. I love, you know, Christmas cider and Christmas decorations. Even I hear people say, like, I hate the commercialism of Christmas. I, I love the commercialism of Christmas. I think it's awesome. I love Christmas commercials. I love gift giving and gift receiving. If you don't like the commercialism of Christmas, send me an email, sue me, whatever. I like it. I like going to the mall and seeing Christmas decorations everywhere. Anybody else like that? I like that. You know what else I like? I like when secular uh, songwriters and artists are singing God's praises and they don't know it. I think that's kind of funny. I like Christmas. It's a magical time for me. I like the Polar Express. I like the Griswolds. I like White Christmas. I like It's a Wonderful Life. I like Home Alone. Die Hard, not my favorite. But those other Christmas movies, I love it. I love, love, love Christmas. But sometimes in the magic of the season, I can tend to lose the reality of the situation that God entered into. In the magic of the season, I can tend to lose that God entered into a real moment in, in, in real human history. If you don't think that's like a temptation for us, if you don't think that's a reality for us, let me prove to you that it is. Uh, anybody know who was born on March 15, 270 AD? I didn't know either until I looked it up. There's a guy named Nicolaos of Myra. Eventually, he was given sainthood in the Catholic Church because he was kind and generous and he was a man of prayer. So they eventually called him Saint Nicolaos. Give it a couple thousand years and you're taking your kids to get pictures with a guy in a red suit at a mall. You know? Because sometimes in the magic of the season, we can tend to lose a little bit of the reality that comes along with it. Jesus was a... He was a real baby, born to real parents in a real time and place, wrapped in real swaddling clothes, things that you could touch and smell. He pooped like a real baby. He ate. His parents were really scared. He really entered into this world. The word really became real flesh and real bone. The second thing I want us to pick up from the text here is that it's not exactly butterflies and rainbows and unicorns with Jesus. Jesus was really born into a real mess. Let me say that again. Jesus was really born into a 
real mess. Now, for some of you who, who you know, that's kind of long ago and far away and it's, you know, it's mythological or false or, you know, it's, it's irrelevant to me. Hopefully I just ruined that for you because that's what Luke is trying to get at, that, that this is a real baby. And so for those of you who, like me, you feel nostalgic or Christmassy and it's like, oh, isn't that lovely? Isn't that wonderful? And we read those words and we go, oh, silent night. This is wonderful. Now, I'm going to ruin that for you now. Okay, I've already ruined it for the other people. I'm going to ruin that Christmassy nostalgia feeling for you. I'm going to go back through the text. I've highlighted up here on the screen what's going on because Jesus was really born into a real mess. God entered into the world and there was a lot of pain, suffering, difficulty, and challenges in the midst of God becoming flesh. Verse 1 tells us that Caesar Augustus was in power. We, we just talked about how he got there. He wasn't in power because someone voted him in. He was a power-hungry dictator with delusions of grandeur. And he decreed that the world be registered, why? For tax purposes. That meant for Joseph and Mary that more money would go to an oppressive government and they would sink deeper into poverty. And Joseph, he didn't choose to go to Bethlehem to be registered. He lived in Nazareth. It would have been a lot easier to register there. Caesar Augustus says, ah, everybody's got to go there to their ancestral home. So Joseph took the 90-mile journey south from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And look, if we were readers of this text, Jewish readers in the first century, we would be reading these along and then we go, oh, Joseph went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, city of David, hot dog, something good. Where's the city of David? Jerusalem, right? His capital, his kingdom, where the temple was located. But Luke says, oh, no, 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 no. He's going to obscure little no-name, nowheresville, Bethlehem. Why? Because that's where David was born. Not even going to Jerusalem. There's more pain, by the way, that happens. More difficulty in this text. It says that Joseph went up from Galilee. Did you see that? Up from Galilee, Nazareth to Bethlehem. Well, Nazareth is north of Bethlehem, so he went south. Nazareth, south to Bethlehem. So what does it mean that he went up? Well, the last couple, it was about 111 kilometers from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And the last couple of kilometers of that journey are 3,500 feet up. This was a difficult, long, hard, arduous journey. Joseph was with Mary. But listen, Joseph is from Bethlehem. Mary is not. Mary is under no obligation to go be registered. So why at nine months pregnant does she decide this would be a good idea to take this difficult journey down to Bethlehem? Well, most scholars suggest that she's pregnant but not married and living in Nazareth. And she goes with Joseph to escape the shame and embarrassment of a pregnancy out of wedlock. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in here that is really, really real stuff. It's a mess. What, what we know for sure is Mary didn't think this. Oh, oh, perfect. This sounds like a hoot. You know, I'm nine months pregnant. I'm like 13 years old. I'm not married. I'm afraid. Walking 90 miles uphill sounds like barrels of fun. Joseph and Mary's journey to Bethlehem was an unwanted journey. 
And then, and then while they're there, Luke tells us that the time came for her to give birth. And it's like, again, we gloss over that. The time came for her to give birth. Isn't that lovely? Have you ever been in or near a hospital room when the time comes for a woman to give birth? Especially natural birth? We're talking 2,000 years ago, no drugs, no medicine, no doctors, no nurses. That is not exactly the silent night we sing about, now is it? I mean, I'll spare you the gory details, but we're not talking about a pleasant experience here. We're talking about pain, we're talking about heartache, we're talking about difficulty, we're talking about struggle. And, And what typically happens when a baby is born? Nurses, doctors, they check on mom, they check on baby. Someone shouts out, it's a boy, tears of joy are shed. But look at verse seven. It says that she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Let me ask you a question. Who wrapped Jesus up? Say it with me. Mary. So listen, this is a preteen girl wrapping up her firstborn son right after she's given natural birth in a cave. Like that's a pretty lonely moment, isn't it? No friends, no family around, no support. I don't know, like Joseph is reading Sports Illustrated outside. I don't know what's going on. But it's, it's Mary in an obscure little nowhere village wrapping up her firstborn son. A pretty lonely place to be. And look at the end of verse 7. It says there was no place for them in the inn. We don't know what the inn was. We don't know if like a caravan. It could have been a commercial inn. It could have been a home with extra space. We don't know what it was. What we do know is that Joseph and Mary came looking for hospitality and what they got was rejection. So as I'm studying this passage this weekend, I just started jotting down all the negative things, all the messy things, all the painful things that I saw in those first seven verses. Here's what I wrote down. An oppressive government, an unwanted journey, poverty that's only getting worse, the obscurity of Bethlehem, shame of a pregnancy out of wedlock, Loneliness, wrapping your own child, your firstborn child without any help. Physical pain, trial, difficulty, rejection, and fear. Jesus was born into a mess, into difficulty, into trial, into struggle. It's not exactly that nostalgic Christmassy feeling that we get, is it? But guess what? God does his best work in the middle of a mess. This is where God shines brightest. God sent his son Jesus to bring acceptance where there had been rejection, joy where there had been fear, freedom where there had been oppression, healing where there had been pain, and complete restoration when there had been shame. In this Christmas season, can I just bring you a word of hope this morning? Because this is still so very true for us today. God still does his best work in the middle of our mess. God still does his greatest miracles. God still does the best stuff in the middle of our mess. God enters our mess just as he did 2,000 years ago. He enters our pain just as he did our struggle in order to bring peace, hope, restoration, and joy. So let me ask you a couple of questions. 
Have you ever been on an unwanted journey in your life? Or maybe you're on an unwanted journey right now. You're thinking, you know what? I didn't, I didn't choose this. I didn't choose these circumstances. I didn't want this journey that God has me on. Maybe your unwanted journey is walking with a spouse through mental illness. Maybe your unwanted journey is loving your child through addiction. Maybe your unwanted journey is sticking with a marriage in the midst of infidelity. Maybe your unwanted journey is caring for parents who are aging. And again, you didn't think, you think, I didn't choose this. I didn't want this. This is not the journey I wanted for myself. Here's the hope. God brought his son into the world in the midst of an unwanted journey. He can do miracles in the middle of your unwanted journey too. Just as Joseph, or just as God used Joseph and Mary's unwanted journey to bring the greatest miracle to earth for his glory and your good, he can use your unwanted journey for his glory and your good too. Because for God, there are no unwanted journeys. When Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world be registered and they had to go to their hometown to do it, God didn't go, oh man, what am I going to do now? God went, yep, born in Bethlehem, just like I prophesied however many years ago. No unwanted journeys with God. Well, maybe, maybe you find a friend in Mary because you're running from something. You know, Mary wasn't running from sin in this case, but she almost certainly was running from shame and even potential judgment from people around her in Nazareth. Because remember, she's pregnant and not married. And the story that she's telling is, the Spirit of God came upon me and I'm a virgin and now I'm pregnant. And, and for Mary, taking that dangerous journey to Bethlehem south from Nazareth, looked much better than sticking around in the shame and potential judgment that she faced in Nazareth. Have you been there before? Have you run from safety? Have you run from familiarity? Have you run from security? Because there was a potential that you might be judged. There was something about that safety and security that made you feel shameful. And, and maybe you even ran into danger as a result. Maybe you're running from your past. Maybe you're running from choices. Maybe you're running from a fear of what others might think. And maybe, just maybe, you've run into danger in the form of addiction, insecurity, a pursuit of wealth. Maybe you've run into isolation or run into arrogance or running, running into a, a practical atheism, living as if there is no God. And you find that life is painful and difficulty. Again, again, <laughs> this is God's specialty. Showing up in the middle of that mess. There's a lot of us that think, oh gosh, I've run from God. I've run from shame. I've run from my old life. I've run from choices. I've run from whatever. This is what God has been doing 2000, for 2,000 years. He's a pro at you. He's a pro at those who run away. He's a pro at those who maybe feel shame and judged. And he shows up in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, in the midst of it. Maybe you feel like Joseph and Mary and that you've been left alone. You've been left alone to fend for yourself. You've been left alone to care for yourself without the support of family and friends. 
Remember that God became flesh in the middle of Joseph and Mary's loneliness, wrapping their, only, or wrapping their firstborn son up by themselves without support of family and friends. God can enter your loneliness too. God can bring healing from a rejection, from fe- the feeling of rejection from a difficult breakup or a divorce. He can be a confidant when your friends scatter. He can be an understanding ear when you're alone because this is God's specialty, doing work in the middle of our mess. And friends, this really is the message of Christmas, that God broke through pain and suffering and trial and difficulty and heartache and woundedness 2,000 years ago to make himself known to us. And he can do it today. For some of us, you know, Christmas time doesn't make us feel Christmassy or nostalgic. We feel negative emotions, right? Like the ones we've been talking about today. We, we long for those and we miss those and, and we experience heartache over, over those who've, who've gone before us, who have passed away. Maybe uh, Christmas time brings back that feeling of loneliness or rejection of a failed marriage. Maybe you don't feel all those, you know, you know, maybe you don't watch Home Alone and Charlie Brown Christmas and smile and laugh at Christmas time. Maybe, maybe that longing, that, that heartache comes back. I've got a friend who says that grief is like the soundtrack to our lives. And sometimes at Christmas time, for, for some of us, somebody turns up that soundtrack of grief. You know what I mean? Like when you lost a parent or you lost a spouse or that, that rejection, that heartache, somebody turns that up and it just seems a little bit louder at Christmas time. Friends, can I just remind you today that Jesus made his grand entrance onto the planet to a young, poor, lonely, rejected mom in the midst of pain, in the midst of rejection, heartache, and obscurity, he showed up in the middle of a mess and he can enter your mess this season too. You may be thinking to yourself, Luke, you know, that sounds great. Like Jesus entered into a mess. God entered into a mess in the form of his son, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. I, I get that. But, but what about me today? Like what is that? How do I do that? How do I open my life up to God's grace in the middle of my mess? How do I open my heart up? How do I open my mind up? We're gonna take three cues from the characters in our story. Three real quick cues and then we'll be done. We're gonna conclude with these. And this is it. Opening your heart up, opening your life up to God's grace in the middle of your mess. Here's how you do it. Seek him, declare him, and ponder him. If you're taking notes, jot those down. Seek him, Declare him and ponder him. You know, while Jesus was being born in Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, it says that at the same time there were a bunch of shepherds on a field out in the hill country of Judea, and an angel showed up and started to declare to them, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace with whom he is pleased. Now, when those angels, God's messengers, declared God's message to the shepherds, the shepherds were faced with a choice, weren't they? They could go, wow, that was crazy. Where do we take the sheep now? Whoa, that was amazing. We should tell someone about that. But that's not what they did. 
Look down at verse 15. It says, when the shepherds went away from them, or when the angels went away from them, the shepherds, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, and here's what they do. Here's the action item. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. In other words, the shepherds stopped what they were doing and responded to God's message. They went looking for Jesus. They sought after him. They went to find him in Bethlehem. I want you to know that these shepherds, by the way, they had their own mess to deal with. They're peasants, so they're in poverty. They probably didn't own any land at all. The other thing about shepherds in this time and place was they didn't have a lot of credibility or integrity. They were known for dishonesty. They were known for like, you know, I would say a pirate's mouth, but back then they would say a shepherd's mouth. They, they were known for salty language. They were also known for thievery. There's one Bible scholar that says it this way. Shepherds had a tendency to get uh, the words mine and thine mixed up. <laughs> These guys were in a mess too. But what did they do? They stopped what they were doing and they went after Jesus. They stopped what they were doing and they sought him. Now, I'll be straight with you. When I've got a mess on my hands in my life, I don't want to seek God. That's not my natural inclination. I don't know about you, but here's my natural inclination. When I've got a mess on my hands, when I've got sin on my hands, and God invites me to seek him, when I've got pain and difficulty and trial and struggle and heartache on my hands in my life, what do I want to do? Here, here, it's the triumvirate. Uh, well, it's, we already talked about the second Roman triumvirate. This is the first Lucan triumvirate of what I do when I've got a mess on my hands in life. Worry, control, and fix. It's the trinity of how to respond to God, right? Worry, control, and fix. You know, I got a mess on my hands in life and I just, I let it overwhelm me and I'm waking up at night and I'm getting up early and, I, and it's on my mind and it's distracting all day and I'm worried about it. Or I try to control it. I'm making phone calls and I'm sending emails and I'm, and I'm telling people what to do. I get real directive. When my wife would tell you that when I get stressed, when I've got a mess on my hands, I get directive. Or I try to fix it. I'm like, oh, I can fix this. I can fix this. You know, I remember um, when, I, when I was struggling with, with clinical depression 15 years ago, I was diagnosed with clinical depression, a family doctor. And I did all kinds of different things and I did therapy and I did medication and I did all kinds of stuff. And I remember in the midst of that, my pastor asked me one time, he said, are you seeking God? Are you seeking God in the midst of this? And I said, I go to church. Of course I'm seeking God, you moron. You know what I mean? Like I'm seeking God. He said, well, what are you doing to seek God? And I, and I said, well, I, I worry about it a lot and I'm trying to fix it and control it. And he goes, well, that's not seeking God, is it? And I said, well, you don't know what it is. And I walked away and I sat down and I thought, gosh, you know, the therapy that I'm doing is good and right. The medication I'm on is good and right. That's, this is the right things to do. Diagnose, family, doctor, whole thing. I, I, yeah, yeah, that's right. But I've got a mess on my hands. Pain, difficulty, heartache, trial, struggle. My job is to seek God. And guess what? God's got a promise for you when you seek him. Look at Jeremiah 29, 13. He says, you will seek me and find me. Look at that. When you seek me with your whole heart. See, see, when we've got a mess on our hands in our life and we need God's grace in the midst of it and we go after him, what does God say? I'm here. I'm ready and waiting. I sent my son into the midst of it and the shepherds sought him and found him. 
2,000 years ago. I've been dealing with folks like you for a very long time. When we've got a mess on our hands in our life, our first reaction should not be to fix, control, or worry. It should be seek God. I know it's not our natural inclination. I know praying doesn't always feel right when we have a mess on our hands, but it is right. And it brings peace and grace like nothing else could. Here's the second thing we learn from the shepherds. I love this one. I love this one. God's grace in the midst of my mess is we declare him. We declare him. That's how I open my life up to God's grace in the midst of my mess. Look at verses 17 and 18. 17 and 18. It says, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So when the shepherds sought him and found him, what's the next thing they did? Well, they started talking about him. They started talking about him. And look, Luke says, and all who heard it. So Luke is saying that after they left that manger, they started talking about it to other people. They started telling other people about Jesus, that he had come, born in the city of David, and we saw angels in the sky, and then we went, and there he was, wrapped in swaddling clothes, just like he said. And here's the funny thing. When the angels show up and declare to the shepherds, and they say, I bring you... Glory to God on the highest on earth, peace of men. I bring, fear not, for I bring you good news. That word good news is where we get our word evangelism from. In the original language, that's where we get our word evangelism from, good news. So in other words, the shepherds left the manger and they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it marveled. In other words, they became the first evangelists. They, became, they, they started to declare the good news. They started telling people about Jesus. I find this very fascinating because they had not taken an evangelism class yet. You know, there was, they, they didn't have a gospel tract. They hadn't gone to an apologetics conference. They just got busy telling people about the newborn king. Again, not in my notes. I'm all over the place this morning, but I just want to tell you, look, some of us, we, we get afraid of evangelism, don't we? We get afraid of telling people good news of great joy because, because we ask ourselves, well, what if they ask me, did God really create the world in six days or it should be around billions of years? What about dinosaurs, you know? Did, was Jesus, you know, was he really crucified? And, you know, look at look, the errors in the scripture. There's errors. Can, can you answer that? And we go, I don't know. I don't know. The shepherds didn't have any of that. They just went around telling people, look, we found him. We sought him and we found him. That's all evangelism is, declaring God. I cannot tell you how many times in the last couple of weeks I've had people come into my office and tell me, you know what? I found God's grace in the midst of my mess. I met God in a personal way in the midst of pain, difficulty, heartache, trial. And I say, oh, cool. Well, tell me about that. How'd you do it? And they say, you know what? I was sharing my faith. I was telling somebody about Jesus who didn't know him. I was, I was proclaiming him. I was declaring him to someone else who's not met him. You know what? And I don't have all the answers. I don't, I don't, I, you know, I can't unpack, you know, Micah and, you know, all that stuff. And I, you know, I don't know all the, you know, God's grand redemptive plan. I haven't memorized a whole bunch of stuff. All I do is just tell people about the good news that I've experienced in my own life. And I experience God's grace in the midst of my mess when I declare him just like the shepherds did. Third, finally, and we'll close with this. 
Finding God's grace in the midst of your mess, the way you open your life up to Jesus this Christmas season is you ponder him. Ponder him. Look up here on the screen. It says, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Man, I love this. Man, I love that. Listen, for, for those of you who have walked with Jesus for a while, you, you kind of know what this means, is pondering and reflecting and thinking on what God has done. Uh, for those of you who, who have never met Jesus in a personal way, you've never said yes to him, you've never decided, you know what, I'm gonna take that step of faith and be a follower of Jesus. Can I tell you something that you can find a friend in Mary this morning? Because here's what Mary knew. She knew that this kid was special. Why? Like, you know what? I haven't slept with Joseph and, or anyone for that matter, and now I'm pregnant. And the way I found that out was an angel showed up and told me, you, you know, she's got a hunch that this is probably a special kid. But does she know all the ins and outs of Jesus' life? Does she know the specifics? Does she know that 30 years later he would turn water into wine at a wedding because she would ask him 30 years later? Does she know that she will watch her son go to the cross and she'll stand with one of Jesus' best friends and in his dying breath, he'll look at his best friend and he'll say, make sure you take care of my mom. Does she know all that stuff? Does she know she's got the savior of the world in her arms in that cave in Bethlehem? I don't know. A lot of questions for Mary still. A lot of, lot of unknowns out there for Mary still. But yet she treasured these things. She pondered them in her heart. Maybe, just maybe, you're like Mary today. And you're like, you know what? I got a lot of questions, a lot of unanswered stuff. But I know this Jesus guy is special. I know he's unique. I know he's different somehow. I've maybe explored some other things or maybe done my own thing in life a little bit. Somebody's been telling me about him or I've gone to church a couple times. I know he's special. I know he's different. Open, God, open your heart up to God's grace in the middle of your mess this Christmas season just by pondering those things. It's just thinking. Treasure them up in your heart and allow God to speak to you and send his grace, indeed send his son in the midst of your mess just like he did 2,000 years ago. Jesus entered into our world at a real moment in human history. He was a real baby, and he entered into a real mess. And he still does his best work in the midst of a mess when we seek him, declare him, and ponder him. Pray with me. God, this Christmas season, many of us are entering into family times, friend times, where our temptation will be to worry, fix, and control. <laughs> Teach us, God, to seek you in messy families, in messy situations. God, teach us to seek you. Teach us, oh God, to ponder all that you have done for us, all that you've revealed to us in your word, and even all that you've done in our experience, God, and the grace that we experience from you on a day-in and day-out basis. Teach us to ponder those things. Teach us, God, to be your mouthpiece, your megaphone. God, we don't have all the answers. We just, we're just going to lay that on the table right now. We just confess that. We don't have all the answers. But God, what we do know is we've got a God who loves us, who sent his son for us, 
who's made a difference in our life, who's, who's transformed us. So teach us to declare that we have sought you and found you, that newborn king, in a humble cave in an obscure village in the middle of nowhere, the savior of the world. And God, as we seek you and ponder you and declare you this Christmas season, we ask that we would find your grace in the midst of what we know is a little bit of a mess in our life sometimes. Focus our thoughts, focus our hearts, focus our actions and attitudes this Christmas season. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, amen.